If you'll turn with me to John chapter 12, the Gospel of John chapter 12, we are going to look at verses 27 through 36 this morning. If you want to follow along in the ESV Bible, the blue ESV Bible, you can find that on page 899, page 899. The title of our sermon this morning is, Who is This Man? The key words for our worshipers in training are Jesus, Son, and Who? We just finished our series through Paul's letter to the Colossians, and what a great letter that is. Very much enjoyed our time walking through that letter and all that the Apostle Paul showed us. And so this morning, we're going to begin what will be, by uh, at this point in my ministry thus far, the shortest sermon series I have ever put together. Uh, I have three Sundays that I'll be preaching at Redeemer Baptist Church prior to going on a sabbatical. So next week is our missions conference, and you're going to hear uh, about missions from start to finish throughout the day. So you will hear from our guest preachers, and all of you are going to be here for all of that, and I'm excited to see all of you here for all of that. And uh, so... We'll pick up uh, the week after with this series. But for these three sermons in this series, we are very simply going to consider the Lord Jesus Christ. And today we're going to think about a question that we've asked many times ourselves uh, that you see come up many times through the four gospel accounts in the New Testament. Namely, who is this man? Next time, we'll look at Jesus coming to this world as a man in the fullness of time, and we will conclude by looking at coming to Jesus, the light of the world. And so in many ways, it is Jesus that we talk about every week, as should be the case. The sum and substance at the center of our faith is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it only makes sense that we would preach above all else that which is of, as Paul told us, greatest or most important, which is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. But the reality is that we have the benefit of the Bible, and specifically the benefit of the New Testament. And as such, we are able to understand the Bible in ways different from those in Jesus' day. Because the scriptures that they had to rely on were the Old Testament, but they didn't understand it in the way that we were able to understand it because they didn't have the Holy Spirit-inspired commentators of the Old Testament, which were the writers of the New Testament. By and large, by the way, I will tell you that the New Testament is, in many ways, an explanation of what we already see in the Old Testament. We have a, a description. We have a commentary telling us how to understand what has been revealed in the Old Testament. And so it's a blessing for us that we have this, that we can understand more of Scripture in a, in a deeper and more refined way than the people of Jesus' day would have understood. But we shouldn't be quick to read the New Testament and think about a few of the texts we're going to consider and think, how didn't these people know exactly who Jesus was? It's so obvious. Well, yes, it's obvious to you because you know the end of the story. Now listen, some of you, I want to tell you something about yourselves right now. 
The Bible is the only exception to this. I want you to know. There's only one exception to what I'm about to say, and it's the Bible. So keep that in mind. But if you're a person that gets a new novel, and the first thing you do when you get a new novel is to read the last chapter to see what happens, or if you get like a chapter or two into the novel and then you skip ahead to the last chapter to see how it all ends, or if you're going to go see a movie and before you see the movie you go online and look up all the story and the synopsis and you get all the spoilers before it happens, if that's you, there's a terrible deficiency in your soul. I think that's safe to say. I can't trust you. (laughs) Now that's up there in terms of terrible things you can do in this world. It's like serial killer, cannibalism, reading the last chapter of a book before you read the rest of it. And so the Bible is the only exception to this, right? And thank God we have the whole story because the whole story shows us that in the end, Jesus wins. God's will is fully accomplished. He is glorified. His church is never defeated. Hell and Satan and his minions are cast away forever. And we have the hope and assurance and comfort that we need to live our lives day by day. That's a great ending, isn't it? And the fact that we know that allows us to live our days faithfully onto Christ. So the reason, though, it's so easy for us to read the New Testament and to think that our brothers and sisters who were, who were always asking questions about Jesus and, and who he was were a little bit slow or silly. Well, because they didn't know the full story in the way that you do. So keep this in mind this morning as we think about this text, as we think about this question that we are asking. Now, as we come to this particular place in the Gospel of John, we come at a time when when Jesus had just presented himself as a new kind of king. He presented himself as a king who rules on principles that are not the principles of an earthly king. In fact, they're principles that any earthly king would scoff at. He came as a king of selfless sacrifice. He came as a king that would show his selfless sacrifice most vividly upon a cross. The crowds, assuming that Jesus was going to call all of them to pick up arms and start a revolution to establish this new kingdom, were amazed at Jesus' surprising words when he told them in verses 24 and 25, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies... It remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And so Jesus teaches them that life comes through death, and kingship comes through sacrificial service to others. This was perhaps the final discourse that we see from Jesus prior to his crucifixion. And so he spoke of the effects of the cross. And in this sense, you understand that there was an urgency of what he was attempting to capture in the souls of his hearers. His words were were meant to, to pierce their hearts in the same way that these words today are meant to pierce our hearts. And as we read them all these many years later, we read them. We read them thinking about this question. Who is this man? Why is this man? What did this man 
accomplish. And so we, we read, sometimes we find a great book, and we might read it many, many, multiple times. Maybe you have a favorite movie, and you'll watch it multiple times over and over. I hope you read your Bibles over and over, and in so doing, you may read the Gospels more than most of the books, and you've probably read this passage multiple times. And if they're, if they're well done, that's something that we should do. If a book is well written, then we should read it over and over. And that's a good thing. But especially the Bible. It gets sweeter every time we read it. And so, and so while we know the end of the story, and while all of that helps us to interpret what we see at the beginning of the story, all of the details, there's a sweet blessing to hearing and learning more of Scripture in our lives. We see even more of who Jesus is and what He has done. And we love Him more, and we are more conformed to His image and His likeness. And so in that... When we ask this question, it seems so elementary to us as Christians. Who is this man? But perhaps, perhaps we ought to come to the text. Perhaps we ought to come to this question. Assuming that we will never know all there is to know about the Lord Jesus Christ. We will never fully grasp that which is in many ways a mystery to us. Although so much has already been revealed. And so we will spend all of eternity learning more about our Lord. We'll spend all of eternity grasping more of our Savior. We'll spend all of eternity knowing what it is that He has accomplished in its depth. Because none of us appreciates it for what it truly is to its greatest depth. So considering who Jesus is, And considering what Jesus has done, and as he has made life-changing differences in all of our lives, let's see what he has to say in John chapter 12, beginning in verse 27. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, save me. Glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. 
Now it's verse 34 there that asks the golden question, who is this son of man? Have you ever thought about how often this very question comes up in the Gospels? How often do we see people hearing from Jesus or, or seeing something that Jesus is doing or they're, they're connecting some dots and they're still a little bit confused and they're thinking, wait a second, <laughs> did I just hear what I think I heard? Did, did I see that? Who is this guy? Who is this man? A few places maybe you recall this happening. Mark 2.7, why does this man speak like that? Well, what was their response? They said, he's blaspheming. Who can forgive sin but God alone? But they had the question, who is this man? Mark 4.41, they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Mark 6.2, and on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying... Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Luke 7, 49. Then those who were at table with him began to say things among themselves. Who is this who even forgives sin? Luke nine twenty. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the the Christ of God. John 9.16, some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. Who is this man? One historian wrote, Regardless of what anyone may personally think or believe about him, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries. You see, one does not need to be a Christian to affirm that reality. Even a thousand years after his death and resurrection, it is Jesus' legacy that laid the foundation for much of Europe. After 2,000 years, he has more followers in more places than ever before. His, his teaching on life continues to challenge humanity. His influence has swept across the globe. His trail of influence has been brought across art and literature and government and science and education and any other cultural institution or ideology you might think of. He has taught people about dignity, about compassion, about forgiveness, about sacrifice, about hope about love, his presence is unavoidable, and his impact on this world is immense. However, even though these are irrefutable facts, there are other facts that are quite discouraging when it comes to Jesus and our culture. Americans, by and large, are confused about the identity of Christ. And perhaps surprising, but not untrue, is that many self-professing American evangelicals as a block, as a group of people, are more confused than Americans who do not profess to be American evangelical Christians, according to a massive study of theology uh, that was conducted by Ligonier Ministries and LifeWay Research as early as 2016. Here's the most shocking statistic. self 
professing evangelicals are more heretical than the greater population. Let me give you an example. For this survey, respondents were asked over 50 questions about Jesus. One of the questions in the form of a statement with which respondents, we've all done these kinds of things, they either strongly agree, agree, neither agree or disagree, and then down the other side of the spectrum. The question was, Jesus is truly God and has a divine nature, and Jesus is truly man and has a human nature. And so you're supposed to say, do I agree or disagree? On its own, 62% of the general population either strongly or somewhat agreed with this statement, that Jesus is truly divine and has a divine nature, Jesus is truly man and has a human nature. Now, evangelicals answered, and 83% either strongly or somewhat agreed. However, when the statement was, Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God, 54% of the population agrees. Now, we can see the confusion, and we know, hopefully, we realize that statement in and of itself is heretical. To affirm that Jesus is truly divine eliminates the idea that he is a created being. The view that Christ is a created being is one of the oldest heresies that did great damage to the church in the earliest centuries, and sadly, it persists today. When this question, though, was asked of evangelicals, remember it says Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. 63% of evangelicals, self-professed, agree, and 49% of that 63% agreed strongly. So what we have in the results I've shared is that 83% of the people who call themselves evangelicals affirm the deity of Christ in one statement, and then in the next statement, 63% of them deny the deity of Christ. Now, by the way, Roman Catholics did even worse on this question. They agreed at 71% that Jesus was a created being. But brothers and sisters, having, having a healthy and biblical doctrine of Christ is not just about getting survey questions correct. It's not ultimately about passing a test. Christ's true and proper identity is essential to the church's identity, it's essential to our salvation. Following Christ is central to Christianity. And so that raises the all-important question. Who is this Christ that we are following? Is it a Christ of our own making? Are we like the crowds in John 6, who one moment they're applauding His miracles... But then the very next, they're resisting all of his hard sayings. Do we like Jesus one day, and then the next, we don't? We have to follow the biblical Christ as he comes to us, in in the fullness of who he is and who he has been identified as in the Scriptures. If we're not following the biblical Christ, then we're not following Christ. We also must affirm that Christ's identity is essential to the church's identity because it has to do with the work of Christ. Who Christ is has everything to do with what Christ did. That is to say, Christ's person is essential to Christ's work. 
That's why we always talk about the person and work of Jesus Christ. They go together. They're indissolubly uh, tied to one another. And so we will not, as a church, proclaim the gospel rightly if we fail to get the identity of Christ correct. So when Jesus is speaking, and, and he's saying things that people are not understanding, but what they do understand, they know, is significant and profound and very different from anything that they've ever heard or assumed or expected, what else can they say but, who is this Son of Man? And in the same way that he asks the disciples, Jesus asks of all of us, but who do you say that I am? Well, there's a lot that we can say to answer that question, really, but but we're going to stick with John 12. What is Jesus saying? Now, all of us are quite familiar with the announcement that we see in the Bible, we sang about it this morning, to the shepherds by an angel, that a Savior is born. And then it says, suddenly... There was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Glory to God and peace to mankind. So the angels have a very specific thing to make clear, and that is this, that the Son of God has come into his creation to display the glory of God and to reconcile people away from darkness and bring them into the light that they might have and know peace with God. To make God look great in salvation and to lead man to delight in Him. And this is the very thing that Jesus is praying would happen at this point in His earthly life. His humanity is clear. Right there in verse 27, we see the humanity of Jesus. He says, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Jesus knew very clearly what was before him in his death and resurrection. He knew what was about to happen to him. The the tense here is really indicating that Jesus is saying, my soul is, is constantly in turmoil. He's verbalizing something of what we can relate to perhaps in his, his overwhelming emotion. We've probably all verbalized something that that we weren't looking forward to. We've experienced the physical effects of it. We get hot, our our heart rate increases, we feel nervous and anxious, We we can't keep our mind off of it, we are distracted, right? I got that feeling every time my dad pulled off his belt. You know that sound, that... Terrifying today even, when I do it, I shiver. Right? We, know, we know that sense, though, right? That's something terrible, but, but magnify that times a thousand, times a million. And, and we see, and we see what Christ is, and my soul is troubled. This happened in our Lord's heart and his soul because he is truly a man. And yet, perhaps that's a bit surprising to you. Is it surprising to you that Jesus felt this way? After all, he's the one who holds all things together. We learn that in the book of Colossians, chapter 1. He's the one who healed the leper with a touch. He's the one with a word who cast out demons and calmed the seas. He's the one who raised Lazarus from the dead. But he was 100% man. 
but he was 100% God. So in his two natures, theologically we call this the, the hypostatic union, the two natures of Christ, Jesus lived on this earth to fulfill his covenant obligations before the Father, and he experienced the full range of emotions of his humanity while simultaneously remaining fully God, maintaining his divine nature. And these two natures never intermingle and never mix. How is that possible? Well, that I cannot tell you. (laughs) It is a mystery. But knowing this maybe makes it an interesting reality that, that we would see Jesus in such agony. But we can't assume his human experience wasn't real or that it was just sort of for show to identify with us, but that he himself wasn't really experiencing this. No. We can't deny his humanity because he's divine. In the same way, we can't deny his divinity because of his humanity. He was as much of a man in the flesh as you and I are in the flesh, and the only human difference between him and us is that he did not sin. Now, some say the reason Jesus was troubled here is because he was contemplating the physical horrors of the cross. Now, think of it. Think of the whole environment. Think of the the horrible stench of a place where so much blood had already been spilt. The sweat of the people, the buzzards circling overhead, the flies swarming, his now flayed back unevenly pressed against this this stake of wood, the nails through the nerves of his hands and his feet, the agony, agony is the right word, of trying to even catch a breath, the humiliation, the brutal aftermath of the beatings leading up to the cross. What a devastating way to die. But if we think this is ultimately what Jesus was agonizing over, we really miss something larger, don't we? Jesus said, now is my soul troubled. Why? Because in a few short hours, he, Jesus Christ, the sinless one, would bear the sins of the world and suffer separation from his Father. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus, whose whose soul was never tainted with sin, would in an instant have the sins of the universe poured upon him, the full wrath of God, a payment for the sins of his people. That is why Jesus was in turmoil. The Father and the Son through all eternity sharing perfect, unhindered union and communion with one another, perpetual, unending intimacy with, this, this was theirs. It, it never went away. And even in the Garden of Gethsemane, before, before he was brought to the cross, he cries out, Abba, Father. But when he was hanging on that cross, he cried out the words of the Psalms. My God. My God, why have you forsaken me? So when Jesus said, now my heart is troubled, the crowds didn't understand what he meant. But remember, we know the ending, right? 
We know how significant that is. And we get a glimpse of the very heart of Christ as he's anticipating all that is to come. And you and I, if we truly see this, if we truly see Christ for who he is, we cannot remain the same. But look at his own response to all of this. Should I say, Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. And there's our clue, right? I'm not going to hold back from doing what I've been called and I have set here to do. I must accomplish my mission. I must do what I came to do. And what does he say is that purpose? Verse 28, Father, glorify your name. So the Father hears the prayer of Jesus and then in verse 28 he answers, I have glorified it. And I will glorify it again. And the great news about this is that the the glory of God is full of grace and truth. We know that from the first chapter of John, right? And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So let's pick up the pieces and put them together here. Jesus said his purpose has arrived. And his purpose is to glorify the name of the Father. And for the Father to be glorified in what is about to happen. Because everything God does is in some way intended to reveal an aspect of his glory, his beauty, his greatness. And that most certainly includes the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But you know, the price of our peace, that's what troubled the soul of Jesus. It's a paradox, isn't it? That it is a comfort to us to know that he loves us to the extent that he's willing to take on the penalty and die in our place, to take upon the penalty of our sins, which is the wrath of God that is reserved for us that we deserve. And so if your soul is downcast, if you're having a a trial in your heart, think of the physical pain, okay, but think more so of the personal soul agony of our Lord Jesus Christ, his separation from the Father, his taking upon himself our sins, that we need not be recipients of God's wrath because Christ endured for our salvation and for our peace. And then remember that now, as an object of redemption, he continues to lavish this self-sacrificing care upon you day by day by day. Brothers and sisters, listen, I know some of you are going through some difficult things in your lives right now. Some of you are anxious. Some of you are grieving. Some of you are going through things that none of us have experienced in our lives. Some of you are going and trying to put together broken relationships or you're feeling down and frustrated about the circumstances of life. You're uncertain about your future and what you want and where you want to go and what you want to do. And none of that should be minimized or none of that should be seen as unimportant. It's all important and the Lord cares about all of it. But here's what we know from the scriptures in answer to whatever is going on in our lives because we can look at our circumstances and we can see what Jesus has accomplished. And when we see 
all that he is and all that he has done, we see it all laid bare before us right here and we can find our strength in that he was weak on our behalf. And notice verse 29. Can you imagine this happening? The crowd is standing there listening to Jesus. He's praying out to the Father and then a voice comes from heaven. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake and not mine. Now the indication there is probably that maybe they didn't, they didn't hear the words as they came. They assumed it was thunder or an angel speaking to Jesus. But by that, what Jesus simply meant was that the sound that came down from above and, and came immediately upon Jesus' prayer, uh, prayer about the Father glorifying himself was a clear indicator that the Father had heard his son's request. And so if anyone had doubts about what kind of relationship this was, he now had no more reason to doubt. Listen, I, I would hope that a response like that would get me to pretty much listen to the one who was doing the praying, Right? But we know exactly what happened. As those very same people gathered around and shouted to crucify him. We're a fickle lot, aren't we, humanity? (laughs) Well, Jesus goes on in verses 31 through 33 and shows us three other things that help us identify who this man, Jesus Christ, is. Very quickly, the first thing is there in verse 31. He says, now is the judgment of this world. Jesus' work in this world was not only active in that he did something directly all of the time, but it was also passive in that when something was done to him, and more specifically, when mankind exercised judgment against him on the cross, mankind brought judgment upon ourselves. The first Adam condemned mankind to a life of sin and misery, and the crucifixion of the second Adam assured the world's destruction and judgment. Who is this man, Jesus? He's the man who in all of his divine authority and his right will would sit and is sitting at the right hand of the Father in the seat of judgment in heaven forever and ever and ever because all authority has been granted to him but at the time willingly went to the cross to suffer and die. And so judgment, judgment is of this world. The second thing that we learn about this man, again, verse 31, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Remember that amazing statement from God all the way back in Genesis three fifteen: He will crush your head, but you will bruise his heel. The cross is the fulfillment of that. Jesus came into the world to crush the head of the serpent, and his death on the cross Maybe a bruise to his heel, to Jesus' heel, but that very same heel is crushing sin and death and Satan and all of his demons on our behalf. And so who is this man, Jesus? He's a man that casts out the evil ruler of this world, Satan himself. Third thing, verses 32 and 33, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself, he said, this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. This might mean 
that the death of Christ, when preached with clarity, has a general drawing effect on people. That is the way it seems to be usually taken, or that it draws all kinds of people. But I I think really what this means is that when Christ died, when Christ was lifted up on the cross, he actually secured, he actually obtained, he actually guaranteed the salvation of his sheep, not just some general idea of people. In other words, his death makes it not only possible to offer salvation truly to everyone who would hear so that whoever believes in him might have eternal life, but his death also secures with certainty the bringing in of all of his sheep into his kingdom. The ingathering of the children of God who are scattered abroad as he said in John 11. That's a comforting thought for the Christian, isn't it? That Jesus' death, if you are in him, Jesus' death was for you. Not just generally as a person of humanity, but as a person with a name, with an identity, with a soul that the Lord Jesus Christ has redeemed. Jesus' death is for you. So who is this man who's a man who willingly fulfilled the law that we could not fulfill because we are sinners? He died the death that we deserve, taking upon himself the full wrath of God that we deserve because of our sinful nature, because of our rebellion against God, because of our transgression of his law. He's a man who was buried in a grave for three days and on the third day was raised up to conquer sin and death that you and I need not experience what he experienced in sin and death, but that in our own death, we fall asleep in the Lord and we awake in the arms of Jesus. Now remember, God's purpose is to get all the glory in the death of his son. He glorifies himself in the death of Christ, not only by making salvation available to all so that whoever believes may have eternal life, but doing it with absolute certainty, as we said. But that's a problem for all those people who are listening to Jesus. Because according to Jewish theology, the Messiah could not die. They knew the Old Testament. That's what I mentioned at the beginning. They knew the Old Testament scriptures, and you would have too, but don't think you're smarter than them. You're probably not. I know some of you. You're not. (laughs) So they, they knew the Old Testament, but they missed the meaning of important texts pointing to Christ, like Isaiah 53 and Zechariah 13 and Psalm 22. But Jesus was pointing them to these things and he's reminding them of these things and all of a sudden they hear all of this. They hear about his death. They hear him alluding to some kind of resurrection and they say, who is this son of man? Wait, Jesus, if you're the Messiah, you can't die. You are to remain forever if you're truly him. We're going to run off the rulers and principalities of this earth. We're going to set up your throne and you're going to remain on that throne forever and ever. So either you're lying and someone else is the Messiah and you're not him or there's something else going on. But, but we know what we have learned and unfortunately for them what they had learned was wrong. It was dead wrong. 
So they asked the question, who is this son of man? Surely it's not someone we have recognized. But you know, whether they say it today or not, many people in the world today, many of our neighbors, many of our friends, many, many of our family and co-workers are asking the same question, who is this son of man? Confusion and indifference reign And even self-professing evangelicals don't know what to say because they don't understand what they say they believe. So what about you? If someone turns to you and says, who is this son of man? What would you say? I hope you'd start by saying, he's my Savior. He's my Lord. He's my God. He is the Son of God the Savior of the world. And he can be your Savior too if by faith you come to him and trust in him and stand upon his righteousness alone and not anything that you come to offer before God. And to all of this, the Lord responds with an ominous sense of urgency and he tells them all, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you might become sons of light. Do you believe in the light? That's what Jesus calls us to. He was saying, you have heard my message, light or darkness. It's that simple as he presents it. Light or darkness. What is it going to be? Who is this man? He's the light of the world. And in him there is no darkness. And in him, if you are a Christian, all of the darkness is taken care of on the cross. And you, reconciled to God, can bask in the light of the Son who came into this world to glorify the Father in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection, that you might live life everlasting with him forever and ever. Who is this man? He's your only hope. So what are we going to do with that reality in the days ahead? Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful. And I pray, made all the more grateful this morning for the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I'm sure all of us here this morning can admit that as we go about our daily lives, we get busy and we get focused on the things that we're doing and in so doing, we tend to think about the Lord Jesus in ways that are often fleeting. And yet when we come to the scriptures and are reminded afresh of who Christ is and what Christ has done, I pray, O God, that our hearts are inflamed once again with a greater sense of the glory that Jesus came and sought to display in all that he accomplished. I pray that yet again we are reminded of the the beauty, the treasure of our faith in Christ. I pray yet again that we are reminded of of the depths 
that Jesus went in order to save us wretched sinners deserving nothing of what is ours and yet given all to his very life in death that we might know and trust and love the one who did all that he did that we might know life everlasting. Help us, O God, to contemplate Christ, to trust in Christ, to follow Christ, because Christ is all that we have, but Christ is all that we need. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.